Hi, everyone. This is Liam Sanyo from Inside Scientific, your favorite online source for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content helping you do your best work. This episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Stephanie Simmons, Research Fellow of the National Heart Foundation of Australia, and Dr. Megan Fine, Veterinary Surgeon at Data Sciences International, who recently joined us for a webinar where they present wireless glucose monitoring methodology, best practices, research findings, and discuss the power of continuous glucose profiles, particularly when combined with other gold standard assays to study obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular-related diseases. Let's jump right in. first question is, uh, how long does the sensor last? Megan, can you answer this? Sure. So the device is guaranteed for up to 28 days following implantation. However, some devices will function for longer than that, up to up to six or eight weeks. It's because the sensor works through an enzymatic reaction. So that gets used up as it's in contact with blood glucose. So if it's the animals at a really high blood glucose or extremely hyperglycemic, may get more towards a 28-day sensor life. However, if it's a euglycemic or a, maybe a more mildly hyperglycemic animal, you might get a longer duration. So one tip that I can provide is that it's really important to keep the implant turned on after surgery. So unlike some of our other telemetry, say for example, a blood pressure device where you can turn that implant off to save battery life, the limiting factor with the glucose is more related to the sensor life itself versus the battery life specifically. So you don't actually want to turn the battery off. You want to keep that on so the device functions and the metabolites from the enzymatic reaction keep getting moved away on the device while it's on. So ideally, you just implant it and then leave it on during that healing period until you start the calibration process and then start the animal and study after that. Great. And Stephanie, what is your personal experience? Yeah, so we've had no problem with uh, probes not lasting in the models we use, being mice, lean and obese. And yeah, like with the blood pressure system, you often can get a bit a couple more weeks than DSI promise kind of thing out of the probe. So it's pretty good value for money, I feel. Perfect. And the next question is, uh, Dr. Simmons, in your experience, are there any specific difficulties in the implantation of blood glucose probes in lean versus obese mice? No. Like we often get asked because of the excess fat in the obese animals, is it harder to get the probes in and things like that? The probes sit really well. The animals don't find any really adverse effects being obese and having the probe there. Probably the hardest thing is just locating the coronary artery and getting it in cleanly in that area and very similar to what you'd experience when you're doing the blood pressure system as well, though. That's great. The next question is, uh, Dr. Fine, can you please explain or clarify again how to do the calibration? Sure. So for the calibration, it's essentially a glucose tolerance test that you're going to use typically. And we do, I think I mentioned in the in the webinar, but we do have some great resources on the website as well that go into even more detail than I will. But basically, we typically use a fasted animal for a few hours. So they're at a steady state baseline glucose. And then we use a, a glucometer to take the a baseline value of the blood glucose. We actually sell a, a preclinical glucometer. So it's uh, made by Nova Biomedical called the Statstrip Express. And it's a glucometer that has an extended range up to 900 milligrams per deciliter. So if you're using, say, for example, a really diabetic animal, some of the other monitors will just like peg at a high reading and you don't actually know what your true blood glucose is. So this one will actually give you a true value. And it 
corrects for hematocrit, which is nice because other systems just assume a constant hematocrit for probably not a mouse species. So for another another type of like a human species. So it provides the accurate results. But anyway, so you take a baseline reading and then administer the dextrose. And typically in, in mice and rats, we'll typically do an intraperitoneal injection of glucose, dextrose. And so then you wait and watch the signal following the telemetry signal live. And then once you see that blood glucose value on the telemetry system peak, you wait three to five minutes if you're doing an intraperitoneal tolerance test or oral tolerance test. It's a little bit longer of a delay for an intravenous tolerance test about 10 to 15 minutes after the peak because of the different patterns of absorption of the dextrose. And then you take a, so you take a sample, a second sample near peak, and then you use those two samples to, to outline your curve and perform the calibration of the implant. Then that data can be input into the computer and that allows you to transform into your milligram per deciliter or millimolar blood glucose values. Perfect. Thanks for sharing that, Megan. The next question is, uh, what animal models have you implanted with glucose telemetry? And as an extension, are there any are any of the diabetics betic models more difficult to work with? Megan, maybe you could share your experience first. Sure, I can start and talk a little bit about what we've done in our lab. So in mice, we've done just regular Swiss Webster's C57 blacks, um, and then we've done some metabolic models such as the OBOB, DBDB, and the diet-induced obesity, um, which was mentioned earlier. So both the animals control and then as well as animals that were on the high-fat diet. In rats, we've used uh, Sprague dollies. We've also used Sprague dollies as a type 1 diabetic model that have been treated with STZ. And we've done fatty zuckers, ZDSDs, and then in large animal, non-human primates, swine, mini pigs. So for as far as if the diabetic models are any different or difficult to work with, that was one thing that we were concerned about when we started working with them, just because knowing that the, in general, diabetes tends to negatively affect healing. And so there are a couple things that we've done to help kind of mitigate those effects um, and a few things that we've found. So for one, if it's like a type one diabetic model, so something that we would induce like with an STZ induction, we typically try to wait till after the surgery to induce the disease state rather than inducing first and then doing the surgery on a disease model. Where that's not possible necessarily like in a type two model, we just really watch them carefully post-operatively for wound healing, skin irritation, just general health and animal welfare. We do, you know, we have seen some animals that have issues with skin irritation or erosion, either over the sensor itself. And that's why I mentioned that the sensor in the neck area. So you need to just make sure when you're doing the surgery that it lies down nice and flat underneath the skin. If it, if it bulges up and you haven't laid it down nicely, you can get some erosion over the sensor there. And then when making the pocket for, so if we're doing a subcutaneous device placement, we want to make that pocket really big. In a mouse, it's pretty hard to make the pocket too big, but it's relatively easy to make it too small. So we just make a really large pocket on the side of the mouse, being really careful not to let that pocket open up ventrally so the implant doesn't slide down underneath the belly. We, you know, we found in, in the obese models, there's a little bit of, you know, there's fat kind of everywhere. And so it does provide a little bit of padding under the skin. So we've actually seen typically less skin issues with those obese models than we would with like a, like a C57 black that can be, have a little bit of skin sensitivity anyway. So sometimes in the leaner models, we end up putting the implant intraperitoneally um, to help protect the skin. It also, like I mentioned, gives us great core body temperature. So we have really accurate calibrations as well, but just a, a kind of a difference between the lean and the obese models. 
Great. Thanks. And Stephanie, what animal models have you worked with? We've only used the mice models all on a C56 background, lean and obese. We haven't gone to the DVDBs or OBOBs yet. The only tip I would give from what Megan was just saying is I think putting the pocket as far on the side as you can is a great tip, especially in the obese models. Otherwise, because they have so much excess weight around the middle, it can drag maybe on the ground kind of thing. So putting it on the side is a really important part of the surgery. Great. Thanks. So here's a question. What's the maximum glucose level that this implantable device can detect? Megan, can you answer this question, please? Sure. Um, so with the ability to calibrate it up um, to 900, the, we have been able to find that the device does detect, has like a nice linear curve up to 900 milligrams per deciliter. Sorry, I don't know, <laughs> know that in millimolar off the top of my head. But so yeah, it can go quite hyperglycemic and, and should still be accurate up in that range. That's great. Thanks, Megan. Here's an interesting question. If you're implanting both blood pressure and glucose in large animals, where do you suggest placing the catheter and sensor? Yeah, great question. So with the new M1G, that's a possibility with one device. Um, so we've done some of that work initially in that product. And so one placement that we were pretty happy with was using essentially both femoral arteries. So we place the implant itself in an intramuscular pocket, specifically underneath the external abdominal oblique and above the internal abdominal oblique muscles, and then tunneled one of the sensor to the one femoral and the catheter to the other femoral. And when we inserted those, which we made sure that we inserted them to different depths. So essentially the sensor was higher up in the abdominal aorta and then the catheter was further down, just so we didn't want those two to end right at the same level. And so we controlled that by how much length we inserted, which we could tell by how much length we had out. So that was one way that we were pretty happy about it. Another option would be to use a different peripheral vessel. So say, for example, you could use one femoral and the carotid artery, if that's a placement that you're more comfortable with. I guess it's similar in the small animals, so not using one implant, but I showed a picture in one of my slides of a rat implanted with an HDS11 to monitor blood pressure, ECG, temperature and activity, as well as an HDX11 to monitor the blood glucose. And those are available on two separate frequencies. So those you can actually collect the data concurrently in one animal with those. And so for that implantation, we put the glucose implant inside the abdomen and inserted the sensor directly into the abdominal aorta. And we placed the blood pressure catheter into the femoral artery, so into the peripheral artery. And so when we, we had the blood pressure catheter placed first, and then we went in to the abdomen to place the glucose sensor, we could actually see right where that catheter ended. And so then we just inserted the blood glucose sensor just proximal to where the catheter ended. So we kind of had them staggered in the abdominal aorta, and that worked well. It's a great answer. Thanks, Megan. Dr. Simmons, how many samples are required or recommended during a glucose challenge? So I think we do it a number of ways. So we will do a typical glucose tolerance test before we start really collecting data just to cal calibrate the system as DSI, I think, recommend. And we will also, and so we'd at least take six points during that. Throughout whatever experiment we're doing, we take at least one data point 
a week with the manual glucose and to calibrate or to check the calibration. But often it'll be a couple of um, points during the week. And then towards the end of the experiment, we will always do at least one more glucose tolerance test manually while the continuous glucose system is running just to check if there's been any shifting in the system, which we don't find. If you're within that warranty period, we don't find a whole lot of shifting in the lean and obese models we use but they're not at the higher end, as Megan was saying. All right. Thanks, Stephanie. Now, this question came in before the webinar, but just to clarify, do the animals experience any problems when housed in pairs, such as tangling or any other strain on the wires? Yeah, so it's a good question. So these are totally fully implantable devices. So nothing is external in the animals. So there's nothing to get tangled or, or strained on. You. The animals may be individually housed for data collection. With the small animal implants, you'll only be able to collect data from one glucose implant at a time. So some facilities still require or some research still dictates that the animals would be pair housed. So in that instance, you could do either non-implanted companion animal. So they have a cage mate that they're with that's not implanted, or you could implant two animals and monitor from one one at a time. With the large animal solution, like I mentioned, they are able to be kind of freely roaming and socially housed. So um, those animals can be housed together if, if that's acceptable to the research. And yeah, nothing externalized, no wires or anything to get, to get hung up with. Great. Thanks. Dr. Simmons, what is the success rate of implantation for you in mice? Have you experienced any unique challenges with this? No, so the use of the continuous blood glucose system, and I was a little bit, I guess when you do the first one, it's a little bit different than the blood pressure system, just the end of the probe and um, I think the flexibility of the probe. But we have very little difference between our blood pressure and our continuous blood glucose system in terms of the success of the surgeries and everything, and it's very high. So the one worry I often get from researchers is the continuous blood glucose system can't be reimplanted into mice as the blood pressure system can, but I don't think you need to really worry about it because once you have your surgical technique down, you shouldn't be um, experiencing a need to reimplant into other animals through the battery life. So we expect about you know about an eighty to ninety five percent success rate. So depending on you know like like we talked about, some of the animals are more or less healthy depending on how diabetic they are. But typically, we expect at the end of that twenty eight day period that you still should have at least eighty percent of of the animals around and health healthy quote unquote to be on study and the sensors working. So we do recommend. You know, taking that into account and overpopulating if you need to, um, if you have, you know, assuming that you should be, should be at about 80% or greater at the, at the end of the 28 day period. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.